0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What's your biggest weakness is a job interview question potential employers seem to always ask. I care too much. I work too hard. Those are the responses that we often give. And we give them because we don't like to show that we're vulnerable. And to be fair, a job interview is maybe one of those places where you don't want to give your potential employer a litany of your personal foibles and insecurities. But the job interview does crystallize a human tendency, namely our desire to project strength and to control how people perceive us. So we nicely tailor our resumes our LinkedIn pages, and our social media accounts, so that we look the part that we want to play, sometimes without making sure that the outward projection corresponds to the inner reality. Now, since the past, this past fall, we've been doing a Bible study on Joshua through Kings on Friday mornings. We've just recently begun the book of 2 Samuel. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel wants a king, and so God gives them King Saul. 1 Samuel 9-2 describes Saul as being physically impressive. And Saul was a choice young man, and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Yet in spite of his impressive appearance, Saul was not a good king. One chapter later, when they're preparing to anoint him king, they can't find him because he's run away, hiding in the baggage train. Throughout his reign, he was repeatedly disobedient to God, becoming excessively paranoid, as demonstrated by his many attempts to assassinate David. David, on the other hand, is depicted to us as almost the exact opposite as King Saul, he, was, he wasn't the oldest in his family, nor was he the most physically impressive. He was the baby of the family, the youngest of eight brothers. Further, he was a shepherd. So in First Samuel 16, when Samuel the prophet showed up to the house of Jesse with a message from God that one of the sons of the house would be anointed as Saul's successor, David wasn't even home. He was out tending the flocks. So Samuel went to the first son of Jesse named Eliab, who, like Saul, had an exemplary physical stature and prowess. But God made it clear to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So Samuel went to the next oldest son, Abinadab, who was similarly dismissed, because neither hath the Lord chosen this. So they passed to the third oldest son, Shama, who was similarly rejected. And the same pattern is repeated for each of the seven brothers who were present. And when they got to the end of the line, it caused Samuel to turn to Jesse and ask if all the sons were present. And so when Samuel found out that David, the youngest of the brothers, was in the field with the flock, he urged them to send for him. And when David arrived, the Lord confirmed that David would be the successor of King Saul. Now, there is another Old Testament story that I've always found really interesting. And I think it's related to the theme in 1 Samuel 16. And that occurs in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah was on the run from the evil rulers of Israel, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. So he went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and nights, And he subsequently ended up in a cave where he was feeling isolated and dejected. There the Lord confronted Elijah and instructed him to step outside the cave and stand on the side of the mountain. A violent rushing wind swept by so forcefully that the rocks crumbled. But God was not in that wind. A rumbling earthquake shook the ground, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then a fire passed by Elijah, but the Lord was not in that fire. Where was God then? How was he going to show himself to Elijah? He came not in the fantastical signs, but in a still, small, quiet voice, a whisper. These two Old Testament stories share a theme in common with this morning's epistle reading from 2 Corinthians 11. What we see in all three passages is that God shows himself to us in all the places that we don't think to look. He shows himself to us often using human weakness, a theme which reaches its ultimate culmination with the crucified God on the cross thirsting and in agony while simultaneously exhibiting his power and affecting our salvation through a radical kind of enemy love and self-sacrifice. And what we see in our reading this morning from 2 Corinthians is that Paul takes this same theme of God's power in human weakness, and he applies it to his own ministry. But it's first helpful to understand a little bit about the context of 2 Corinthians, because if you read either of the Corinthian epistles, you come to realize pretty quickly that they were not a perfect church. Sometimes people talk about returning to the first century church or returning to the primitive church. We don't want to return to the Corinthians. There were all kinds of partisan tensions going on in their their parish. There were fault lines. There were loose moral and sexual conduct and even abuse of basic Christian rituals like the Eucharist and spiritual gifts. To make matters more complicated, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians... It seems that some false apostles had worked their way into the community and were challenging the authenticity and authority of St. Paul's ministry. And so our reading this morning comes from a part of the book where Paul is defending his apostleship and his ministry from those accusations by his theological opponents. Now, Paul could have defended his apostleship by pointing them to his very impressive resume, and by answering the interview questions just right. St. Paul was highly educated. He did write, after all, most of the New Testament. He traveled the world preaching the gospel. He converted countless souls. And further, he quelled internal strife in the church by making space for Gentiles to be considered full members of the church instead of insisting on an ethnocentric Jew-first policy. But that's not what Paul does in our reading this morning. While he does claim that he could go toe-to-toe with the false accusers, because, after all, he is a Hebrew, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a servant of Christ, that's not what his focus is on in the reading. Rather, the defense of his ministry is a laundry list of all the bad things that happened to him. He was whipped by the Jews five different times, flogged three other times, stoned, shipwrecked three times, put in danger on his many journeys from rivers, robbers, his fellow countrymen, from pagan Gentiles. He was put in danger in cities and in wilderness, in the sea. He was put in danger by false brothers, in hard work and toil, through sleepless nights, from hunger and thirst, and from exposure to the cold. And on top of all of these things, Paul tells us he received the daily pressure from his anxious concern for the churches. And I don't think that what Paul is doing here is some sort of humble brag, because he ends the reading by saying, Who is weak? And I am not weak. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. But why are these weaknesses a point of pride? Why would Paul point to all the things that seem to have gone wrong in his ministry instead of those things he could use to pad his resume? I think our collect for today begins to hone in on the answer. O Lord God, who seest that we put not our trust in anything that we do, mercifully grant that by thy power we may be defended against all adversity. In his powerlessness and weakness, God's strength was manifested through St. Paul. This is how God often works. It's how he worked in the stories of David and Elijah. It's also how he worked in Exodus 4 when God called Moses and Moses resisted him because he was slow of speech. Or in Judges 6 when God called Gideon and Gideon resisted him because he was the least in his father's house, which was the weakest clan in all of Israel. It's how Isaiah responds in Isaiah 6 when God called him and Isaiah said he was a man of unclean lips. And it's true when God called Jeremiah and Jeremiah resisted because he was too young. As if it's not amazing enough that God, the creator of everything, uses humans to bring about his desired end. It's even more amazing that he chooses to use those who aren't the strongest, who aren't the tallest, who aren't the most well-spoken, who don't have the most impressive resume. And what this means is that if the God can use all of these characters in the Old Testament, if God can use St. Paul, he might also be able to use us too. One of the great tensions in the Christian life is that between faith and works. Various Christian traditions and various theologians often emphasize one at the expense of the other. And one of the geniuses that's built into our lectionary is that it balances these themes out. So last week, we began the pre-Lenten season with a reading that compared living the Christian life to being an athlete. And it was an exhortation for us to train ourselves, to fast, to learn self-discipline, to control our passions and our appetites. But this week, we're being reminded of our inherent weakness. And I don't think it's to shame us for those weaknesses, but to remind us where we should draw our strength from. Not from ourselves, because when we do that, we'll always be disappointed. We'll always fail. We draw our strength from God, who bestows manifold grace on us so that His power can be manifested through our weakness. So, as we prepare for Lent, it's important for us to understand that our weaknesses are an opportunity. Because probably in the 40 days of Lent, we won't fast the way that we should. We will give in to besetting sins. We will grow tired of fighting the good fight. But all of these become opportunities, an opportunity for us to be living testimonies to God's power working through us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.